0: Welcome to the podcast of the Center for Asian-American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary, a space for ongoing dialogue among Asian-American scholars, ministry leaders, and activists. Hello, everyone. I have the distinct privilege and pleasure to host a conversation with my friend and colleague, Dr. Jerry Park who is associate professor of sociology and, a, and an affiliate fellow of the Baylor Institute for Studies of Religion. Hi, Jerry. Hi,
1: David. Thanks for having me.
0: It's good um, connecting with you again, especially after our April online Asian American Theology conference where you yes. were one of our presenters. I find like we, you and I, we have regular conversations and they're always very interesting and there's at least two topics that I want to talk about with you today, some things that we've been emailing each other about. And I thought our audience would really invite and welcome and like to hear your thoughts on a number of issues at the intersection of racial identity and religious faith. In in some of our earlier emails, we were talking about Emerson's divided by faith and how it stimulated some of your own reflections at the intersection of race and religion, some of our audience may not have read Emerson's work. So I thought maybe you could lay some context with what Emerson is doing in this book, uh, Divided by Faith, and why it's a significant work. And then to share with us some of your own specific reflections from the perspective of Asian Americans.
1: Sure, sure. Thanks so much. Yeah, when I think about the, the issue of whether or not people are familiar with Divided by Faith, I'm reminded of how old the book is. It it feels fresh and recent for me because it was so pivotal in my graduate education, but that was about 20 years ago. Yeah. For those who are new, uh, I guess you're maybe millennials or uh, post-millennial at this point, Michael Emerson and Christian Smith's Divided by Faith is an absolutely uh, critical uh, piece. If you want to understand how many white evangelicals in the United States in the late 20th, early 21st century, Think about issues like race relations. What they did was they interviewed at least 100 uh, white evangelicals all across the United States, and what they discovered was that theology works like a narrative, and it's a narrative that you can pull out propositions, propositions about the way we, like who we are as as our identities, who we are in God, in Christ, and how the world works. How do we understand what's moral, what's right, what's fair, and, and such? So when it comes to issues of racial inequality, they found that white evangelicals often struggle or face two particular propositions within their theological narratives. Number one, we're always individually accountable to God. And then secondly, they conveniently reject structural explanations for inequalities, that, that individuals might actually be participating in larger systems that might actually create inequalities that have broad consequences for entire groups of people, not just individuals. So because they use these two ideas, it it generates a logic that says we don't need things like affirmative action. The police don't uh, discriminate against uh, Black people in any inordinate fashion compared to anyone else. And if there are any alleged inequalities, they clearly must be at the foot of African-American for not working hard enough, not lifting themselves up, not abiding by the merit, supposed meritocratic principle of the United States. I thought this was really interesting and it really helped ground a lot of my thinking about what is it that I wanted to study for my dissertation and then uh, moving forward into uh, just a research plan. So I worked with a colleague, Victory Nahosa, and we um, wanted to examine some of the statistical data Emerson and Smith first used to make their argument because we wondered, Is it really just white evangelicals that believe this, or is this actually more white Christian phenomena? You can actually use the same exact data and look at the responses given by white Catholics and white mainline Protestants in addition to white evangelicals. And what we found, surprisingly uh, enough, or maybe not, all white Christians seem to be exhibiting the exact same. And what I notice in all of these studies of political behavior and social attitudes and political attitudes since the year 2000, yeah, there is a kind of lockstep subculture among white Christians that follows this white evangelical toolkit. We were leaning towards calling it maybe a white Christian American, that it's not just the white evangelicals that are thinking this way. So we fast forward now, we finally get access to Asian American data, where we can actually look and see, are Asian American Christians also in lockstep, or do they take an alternative take on things? When we look at African American Christians, for example, they don't have the same patterns of explaining why racial inequality exists compared to the way white Christians do. Okay, so where do the Asian Americans fit into the, this dynamic? And what we found, I did a study with uh, colleague James Davidson and graduate student Joyce Chang about a year and a half ago, and we examined questions about beliefs of equal opportunity, and whether or not it still exists in America today, and whether or not everyone has access to it, and what we found was that Asian Americans show the same kind of attitudes about equal opportunity attitudes as uh, white Christians white Christians are more pronounced. So if you could have a spectrum, you have white Christians at one end, and then you have African-American, black Christians on the other end. And then you have Asian-American Christians that are somewhere in the middle. We took it one step further by looking at whether or not generation actually makes a difference, and it did. So it's actually the Asian-American second-generation Christians that are actually more in tune with uh, the way white Christians think about issues like equal opportunity attitudes. It's the immigrants that are actually more towards the African-American Christian take on a lot of this. So it's really fascinating for us to just see this displayed and see how, how the dynamics are actually quite different, even by generation. And it's led to lots of new questions that I think we need to do more qualitative research on. Like, where is this coming from? Why is it that there seem to be generational distinctions in equal opportunity attitudes?
0: Yeah. This is fascinating, Jerry. Let me just circle back and gain some clarification on earlier statements. So within the white Christian segmentation, what is the range between evangelical white, Catholic white and mainline Protestant white? Is it, are, there, are the dots pretty concentrated and close to each other? Or is there some kind of spread away from the individual accountability and the rejection of structural explanations, or is it pretty tightly coordinated?
1: Yeah, for a lot of these studies, I try to condense it down to the general finding, but it's always a curve. So yeah, there is a little bit of distinction in the curve, but they pretty much bundle close uh, on one end of that spectrum or or whatever the measure happens to be. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. White Catholics, for example, are a little bit more progressive in their thinking about racial inequality compared to white evangelicals. But when you um, put them all together, you find that there's not actually a big difference, statistically speaking, in the bell curves of each of these three groups.
0: Is that in itself a novel finding to claim that mainline Protestant white Christians hold similar uh, explanatory accounts for racial inequality as their white evangelical cousins so to speak is that a surprising finding or not back in 2004
1: when we published it it was a surprising finding since 2010 a number of scholars have been actually citing us as a starting point to unpack even further why this should not have been surprising and yeah and so th- there's been critiques of Emerson Smith's argument that they were just to put it flatly they were just too nice to white evangelicals in a sense getting them off the hook in Uh, A lot of these attitudes, the newer thinking is saying it's probably been so embedded, this sort of racialized thinking that, yeah, many white evangelicals and white Christians in general don't realize it. We're just simply calling what's always
0: been there. Got it. And then with respect to the Asian American research that you and Joyce and your other colleague did, you mentioned how the generational difference accounts for different attitudes and you're trying to explore why and the need for more qualitative work. So I just want to remind our audience, Jerry is a sociologist and he (laughs) operates with surveys and a lot of quantitative data. He's got a congregational survey that he's interested in. Hopefully we can touch upon that topic, but tell me more about maybe your initial hypothesis that explains some of this and what you think the qualitative data might reveal?
1: Yeah, the running theory I'm following is racialized assimilation. To put it in very basic uh, street terms, I think there is a pressure for a lot of second generation Asian Americans to emulate white people. When it comes to Asian American Christians, and, and this is the part that I think needs just further examination, we wanna know what is informing their script. Where are they getting it from? Do they listen to the same music as white Christians? Do they read the same uh, Bible study materials as white Christians? What are the things that are informing their understanding of how to interpret the Bible, how to understand various social issues? What's drawing that in? What I think is so interesting, if we could find a way to access this, is to also look at Asian American Christian immigrants, because they actually are getting socialized in two different locations. The current country in which they live, the United States, but also the country that they came from, if they're Christian, are they borrowing any Christian materials that were actually in their country of origin? And does that, in a sense, work with the materials that they're picking up here in the United States? And does that maybe offer a different kind of mindset, a different kind of toolkit that the second generation doesn't really access? Because many of them are not fluent uh, in the uh, culture of their parents. So where are they getting their sources from? I don't think they're getting it from a, uh, a resource of Asian American theo- theologians, because there's not enough of them. And then secondly, I don't know that many are actually attending to African American theologies either. So that leads me to the only conclusion that they must be drawing this from white Christian resources. And if, if those resources are affecting the way white Christians think about some of these inequalities, I would as expect, hypothesize that. Asian-American Christians of the second generation are also doing something similar on average, right? People like Russell Jung, for example, huge hero of mine. He's clearly informed by lots of other things that I just don't see many other second-generation Asian-Americans taking on. So I think there needs to be some examination of like, where does that come from too? Because it's not all second-generation Asian-American Christians. There is some split. It's just that I think the majority are in one direction There is a minority though, that is going in a different direction.
0: What I'm hearing from you is for more recent Asian American immigrants, their transnational migration story seems to more directly affect their attitudes about explaining racial inequality than let's say a second or third generation Asian American Christian who, you had this phrase about assimilation So there's something about the narratives of immigration that may in part explain the different attitudes. So let me pose a related question. What happens when you remove the Christian identity claim? So what if it were simply religious nuns or non-Christian Asian immigrants and second and third generation Asian Americans? And here's what I'm getting at. Yeah. A sec, like someone who's 30 years old, born in America, second generation, went to public school, educated with, you know, a university degree in the U.S. Maybe they took some ethnic studies courses or maybe the language of social justice and critical race theory flows off their tongues more quickly because they're immersed in a social media environment in which that's just normative versus their immigrant parents who are not culturally assimilated, who don't understand the political history of race and capitalism in the U.S., may not have that language on hand to make sense of their own experience and the experience of other racial minorities. When you remove the religious identity piece, does the difference remain the same? Does it accommodate closer to each other or is it flipped? What would you think?
1: Yeah, I've been thinking about this. I I believe that there is a uh, cohort generational. I'm personally just nicknaming it in America 3.0, I think, and this is all just fresh, I'll take it for what it's worth. Yep. 2020 with George Floyd, with the anti-Asian racism, with the Atlanta shootings, the Black Lives Matter uh, marches and rallies all across the country, the talk of Asian and Black solidarity uh, movements. I think that this particular generation is going to be much more alert to progressive ways of thinking about race than previous generations of second-generation Asian-Americans. So yeah, a lot of my thinking or the argument that I just uh, shared with you is drawn from looking at Gen X and older Asian-American millennials, second-generation folks. So people who arrived in the United States, who were born in the United States from 1965 up to about, let's say, 1997, thereabouts, or let's just say 2000, just to make a simple cutoff. So for that particular cohort, many of them, I would say, are socialized in a very whitewashed understanding of history. Maybe uh, those that were socialized in California got a more progressive historical education. But I would say, for the most part, I think Asian Americans during that period were generally socialized with a fairly like, um, uh, uh, weak, tepid understanding of how serious and egregious slavery was how deep the uh, racial violence traveled, and the invisibility of Asian Americans in general. We know so little about the ways different uh, Asian ethnic immigrant groups were uh, treated from the 1880s to the present, because most of our history books were just completely devoid of it. If you were lucky, you might have heard about the Chinese contribution to the railroad. You may have heard about the Chinese Exclusion Act, and that's it. Then you fast forward to the Japanese.
0: You're even saying right now that for those born from 65 to, let's say, close to 2000, that educational materials in K-12 public education, Asian-Americans were invisible. It's like we were not a historical actor in the development of U.S. history, which which affects their self-understanding of their role in U.S. society. Yes. And so
1: where are they going to figure out, then, who am I or where, where do I fit into the story? Am I just uh, a newbie like my parents are? Or do I actually have a place in the rich, layered history of uh, American society? And I think for a lot of them, they're like, no, I I feel lost. So what are they going to attach to? They're going to look to who's upwardly mobile, who's in charge of America. And they will look to white Americans. And whatever scripts that they hear from white Americans, I think they will possibly be persuaded to adopt more of that thinking compared to alternative perspectives, let's say from their African-American peers. There are exceptions, right? But I'm just talking in a a sort of general rough pattern. I would say like a a majority of uh, second generation Asian-Americans will want to emulate uh, white Americans. But there will be a a minority that will know there there are other ways of thinking about this. And they may have been uh, fortunate enough to have allies, advocates that just point to Look at all these things that weren't taught in your history book, but are in books that nobody uh, recommends that you read except me. All right. And so it'll be Du Bois. Read read some of his work. Read some of the works of other scholars that have talked about a lot of these issues and get around all the stuff that you were taught uh, in your classroom setting.
0: I think what complicates the 65 to 90 range is that Immigration from Asia to the U.S. is ongoing. Right. So it's even in 2021, we still have new immigrants from from Asia, yes. who, mean so it that ongoing history, also affects their understanding of the current political situation, especially around race. Now, you use this really intriguing term, Asian American 3.0. That comes after 2000, I hear. So spell out the rest of your periodization here.
1: Okay. I would call Asian America 1.0 prior to 1964. Asian America 2.0 is 1965 to 2020. And I think at 2020, with all that's happened, we're going to see an Asian America 3.0 emerging where attitudes may, at least on race, may actually start tilting more towards a a progressive end rather than a sort of a muddy middle where you've got 40% leaning, 40% leaning left. And that a a lot of political pundits have talked about through the 1990s through the early 2000s that Asian Americans were a jump ball category, right? Whoever uh, can make the most persuasive arguments on either side of the political spectrum, you're gonna get their vote. and uh, that, what that results in usually is a, a split vote, right? And so neither party ends up seeing them as a valuable um, asset because uh, they're only going in, they're, they, you can easily split them into multiple directions. But I think with 2020, we might see a significant tilt that's going to move more in the uh, direction of uh, a progressive racial politics. So that's how I d- define the three eras of Asian America for now.
0: Yeah. That's fascinating. That's. I, I feel like. In my earlier podcast with Russell and now with you, you're both pointing to, 2020, as a, watershed moment yes. in the history of Asian America. Absolutely, um, and how 65 is a game changer, structurally speaking, with just a massive influx. The floodgates were not, there was a significant influx after 65, which is my Absolutely. own parents' story and probably your parents' story as well. Like mm-hmm. pretty much everyone's story is somewhat affected by 65. Mm-hmm. And you're saying 2020 has affected the masses of Asian Americans as well.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so there's an interesting like complication, and I don't know if it's going to be too hard for a lot of folks to wrap their minds around. We use the word generation in several different ways, and they overlap, and it's it's confusing. So when I talk about the second generation, I'm talking about people that were born to immigrants or were raised in the host country from an early age. Maybe they were uh, born in South Korea, for example, but they arrived in the United States at age one. So up to age uh, 12 is usually the cutoff that they recommend for defining. If you came to the United States anywhere between uh, zero to age 12, you're probably socialized in the United States. If you came to the United States after age 13 or from age 13 onward, you may have a strong identity with the previous country in which you and your parents came from. So that's one way of defining a generation. The popular way we think about generation is through these periods, right? There's the, the boomers, there's the Xers, there's the millennials, and there's, okay, I'll just say just a wonky side note. Sociologists generally don't like these sort of period comments because they're too easy and they're gloss over a lot of important differences and changes that really don't make any sense if you were to look at it from, a, from that perspective. All that's to say, nevertheless, it's very popular for people to define one another by that understanding of generation. What I'm sensing is that these two actually are connecting and they're complicating a story that I hoped was going to be a lot more linear and simpler. So there is, I would say, um, a second generation Asian American 2.0, and then there's going to be a second generation Asian America 3.0. So those folks, I think they've got way more access to the internet, way more examples, celebrities that look like them, in addition to just greater access to Um, multiple voices on issues like racial inequality. This was not available to the second generation that was growing up in that 2.0 era. And so I think we're gonna see some important differences in that regard. But yeah, the sociologists are gonna be, I think, um, stuck in a a really complicated, okay, you've got your second generation, but now you gotta split the second generation into two other cohorts, right? One that's before 2020 and one that's after 2020.
0: I want to hover over this point about the year 2020 being a watershed moment for Asian America, including religious Asian Americans. And I'm thinking in particular of Asian American Christians across intergenerational differences. And I want to speculate across perhaps even theological differences. So we opened by talking about Emerson's Focus on evangelicals, and then you layered in some description about Catholics and mainline folks, and how actually there's more similarity than difference ac- across these religious affiliations. And my interpretation is due to race, due to yeah. a shared white racial background. Right. So, race is, race is operating there in a way that unifies what religious distinctives might distinguish and separate. Yeah, right. So then let's apply the same rubric to 2020 and Asian American Christians. Oops, sorry about that. If I were to run a survey, I want you to put on your prognosticator's hat and just help me with this mental experiment. Would there be a consolidation across denominational and theological difference of Asian American Christians to lean into the race and justice conversation, given what's happened in 2020? If we grant the premise, 2020 was a watershed moment affecting all Asian Americans to think more progressively, and I'm using air quotes here about race and justice, then we should be finding more convergence across different religious institutions that normally you would expect them to be different like evangelicals of all stripes and mainline of all stripes are viewed as different right but according to the premise we would actually begin to see asian american christians regardless of theological denominational affiliation aggregating around these shared beliefs is do you think that would be the case
1: Absolutely. One of the things that has been really instructive for me, thinking back to my graduate school training, I was trained during an era that talked about evangelical and mainline differences. But when we fast forward to the present, I'm seeing a lot of critiquing of that pedagogical approach because it, it made absent or marginalized the problem of race. So when we talk about evangelicals and mainlines moving, mainliners are having two different cultural milieu, they're really white evangelicals and white mainline that are in these. And yes, that story, it's not that it's not true, but that it's actually contextualized to limit itself to the story of white people and white Christians in particular. What I thought was an important takeaway that, that most scholars I think still agree on is that evangelicals for all of their different denominational differences did see convergence when it came to socio-political issues. Same thing with the main line. And that's what made it so interesting that you had these two kind of different camps of uh, views in which you had Methodists, Episcopalians and Presbyterians all joining together. And then you had the conservative Methodists, conservative uh, Presbyterians and and conservative uh, Baptists or whatever, all all converging in a different camp. So what I think going uh, forward, we're going to see a couple of important changes taking place. Number one, we can't um, minimize the fact that more, I think even more of the young generation today, regardless of race, do not identify in any religion at all. They say, I have no religious affiliation. So any potential distribution of resources and scripts that used to happen through an evangelical network, through a mainline network, through a Catholic network, Younger folks are not attaching. Where are they getting their uh, sense of orientation from? How do they, what's actually filling their minds if it's not Christianity today?
0: Social media.
1: (laughs) Yes, exactly, exactly. And so I think it's a, this is a big like Wild West enterprise research-wise. Will there be new divergences, right? That you can almost cluster into two or three camps or is it so diversified that we have no way of recognizing how people are going to go on issues, socio-political issues.
0: This is fascinating because I'm a second career theologian. My first career was in book publishing and academic and religious book publishing, which is about the creation and dissemination of content. So you've used several words and terms recently, scripts and pathways. And you were invoking what I would call distribution channels of content. And you mentioned mainline resources and books and Bible study material and evangelical and Catholic. There are publishing industries. There are noted teachers at conferences and they produce resources that get disseminated within local congregations. And you're saying religious nuns, Mm N-O-N-E-S, who are not plugged into those religious ecosystems will have will access different conversation partners. We, exactly. And my translation of that is information technology is no longer simply about like in, immaterial stuff. Mm-hmm. The, infer, the, the means of communication and distribution become part of the substance, right? Because we're, we're saying people's outlooks and behaviors and attitudes are now being shaped determinately content-wise by how they get information. Yes, yes, exactly. Wow, man, and I'm not even really on Facebook, so <laughs> <this is laughs> I'm a bit of a dinosaur. I still like hard copy books and print out articles. I do that, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, same here. semi semi-conf. I know. Your office is like my office. I see scabs of papers (laughs) everywhere. Speaking about scripts, I hear you're working on a manuscript. (laughs) So we're gonna pivot now, Jerry, to this new book you have. Do you mind sharing the title of the book with us?
1: Sure, it's just a provisional title, but first three words I'm hoping is gonna stick no matter what. Choosing My Traditions, How Second-Generation Asian Americans Think About Their Ethnic, Religious, and Racial Identities.
0: Awesome. Awesome. All right. So that title already generates several questions and I want to begin with you. When I have a guest on my podcast and they've got a new work coming out, I want to hear the personal story behind it. So tell me more about your, maybe your development as a sociologist and religion scholar, but maybe even layer in some relevant personal context. Why are you writing this book now? Why is it important for you to do this?
1: Yeah, uh, I've had a puzzle in in my mind uh, ever since, I don't know, like the fourth or fifth grade even, where as a second generation Korean American, like so many in in my uh, cohort, we were sent to Korean schools, for example. Many of these uh, Korean language schools would happen on a Saturday and they were often tied to some kind of a church, typically Protestant church. I, I don't know if there's Catholic. At these uh, church environments that were about language, I would encounter folks who, when we're not talking about our schooling, what's more important to them, being a Christian, doing things uh, the Christian way, or doing things because you're Korean. And it, it, it was such a weird like dichotomy to notice like, oh, some people are really concerned that you be Korean and act Korean, and other people, I'd rather you just be a good Christian, right? That's always been in the back of my mind. And there had never been any space to actually unpack where all that comes from and why does it happen the way it does. When I fast forward into graduate school, that was my primary research question that I had throughout my time. What sort of resources can sociology help us to where identities come from, social identities like this, and why they we prioritize one over another? So what this got me to thinking was just a a kind of a light sketch over where some of these ideas are coming from historically, and then what implications that might have. One of the big pieces that I hope is an important contribution through the book is that we have these public narratives. Public narrative is a way of describing stories that an entire society teaches to its constituents. In the United States, I argue, and this is, I think, going to be chapter two of the book, I argue that there are public narratives about how groups should be incorporated into society, and there are public narratives about how we're supposed to think about ourselves within a group, okay, what I call self-determination and then group incorporation narratives. Okay, if we stick with the group incorporation narratives, the one narrative extreme we'll call Assimilation. Whatever the dominant group is in that society, you should become more like them, whatever your position happens to be. The other extreme we might call pluralism or multiculturalism. All groups should be treated equally in that society without having to adapt to one dominant group or or another. The self-determination narratives. One extreme I might call hyper-individualism. I'll probably just call it individualism for now. That That perspective says, my own decisions about my life are always paramount over any group commitments that I may be a part of. If I'm a part of uh, two or three different groups, they can tell me what they think is the right thing to do as a member of that group, but the individualist will say, but I decide at the end of it all. The other um, end of that is what we might call collectivism or maybe communitarianism, in which an individual says that. I do have a self, but my self is informed by what my community tells me that self should be about. So we have these four public narratives and they intersect. And this is what it suddenly uh, occurred to me. So much of the sociology of religion was concerned about the group determination angle, and the sociology of race was much more interested in the group incorporation narratives. And when you ask Asian Americans, especially the second generation, how you understand who you are, they're actually borrowing from a bunch of these different uh, narratives and creating their scripts. And so that's what the book is about. Just unpacking, what does this look like when we ask people about their ethnic identity? What does this look like when we ask about their religious identity? And then what might this look like when uh, we ask them about what does it mean to be Asian American? And so it, it took a lot of years and just reprocessing the same interview over and over again, like, oh, I get it now. <laughs> People are saying such contradictory things because they're actually drawing from multiple narratives. So for example, what I try to show in the book is you could have somebody who was raised as, let's say Chinese and Christian. They got all of their uh, socialization through a local Chinese church. When they get to college, all of that is up in the air. They've stopped being a part of anything and they, they don't identify themselves anymore as being Christian. They might still identify as being Chinese, but they might uh, dismiss it as yeah, but it's just symbolic I just do it because it makes my parents happy. Meanwhile, you ha- might have somebody who is completely devoid of a lot of those kinds of resources. They were never part of an ethnic or religious community. And then they come to college, for example. And all of a sudden, they've identified as uh, an evangelical Chinese-American, right? Uh, These narratives just don't make sense when you think about the typical socialization theory that everybody would expect. You're given a lot of resources, you're going to do well. You're going to adopt that identity, and uh, you're going to internalize it. What I'm finding is that Asian-Americans go in so many different directions— regardless of whether or not they've been given a lot of these resources or whether or not they have. I noticed this when it comes to ethnicity. Many of them will say, I'm not really Vietnamese enough, even though I went to a lot of the schooling and spent a lot of time in the community. I don't really think of myself as very Vietnamese. Meanwhile, others will say, oh yeah, Vietnamese is really important to me. What about your environment? Where did you grow? It was a mostly white community. There weren't really a lot of you know ethnic activities for me to participate in, but here in college, yeah, really important to me. And suddenly they're like adapting to this new identity.
0: Let me try to internalize what I'm hearing. There's a lot of moving parts. Yeah. It's, a very, it's a very sophisticated framework. And I want to pick out the racial identity piece and the religious identity piece sure. and understand how you're coordinating old paradigms of interpretation and your new paradigm of interpretation. What I'm hearing on the old paradigm of interpretation is something along these lines your race or your religion determine x y and z meaning you can invoke the chinese identity or the evangelical identity as explaining something explaining this behavior this attitude this outlook how you pull a lever Mm -hmm. that's Perhaps an overdetermination by these identity claims. What you're saying counter to that is the over the overdetermination by these identities doesn't account for these contradictory statements. When you interview people, when you do the empirical field work, and you start mm-hmm. talking to religious, racial people, Chinese mm-hmm. evangelicals, or what have you, right. it's much more complicated, and yeah. there's a lot of um, non-conforming testimonies. Yes. And so your new theory is to deflate the over-determination and to look at something else. So I see you nodding. So I I think I'm I'm like, okay, good. I'm sort of tracking your claims. Yeah. What explains what for you? So if there's an over-determination on the old account, Mm -hmm. you're... From your examples, what I hear you saying is there's a kind of case-by-case basis. You have to listen to the person who's an agent who is selecting scripts based on their pragmatic function. There's a the utility to use script A versus script B, given right. their situation. And the situations are different in rural America, where there are no other Asians versus like San Francisco, where there are five generations of Asians. and so how you use a script depends on your circumstances. That much seems to be at work so far, but can you say, so one, would you agree with that? And and two, would you say more?
1: Yeah, I would say in general, that should be the case. And that's what I feel like are the conventions that we expect in sociology. Uh, If you are socialized in environments where there's uh, a lot of the resources for your um, ethnic identity development and the right networks, it should flourish. But what I wanted to point out in the book is that may be the case, but you can actually find quite a lot of folks who have had access to these resources, and they still don't identify necessarily very strongly as an ethnic person or as a religious. Meanwhile, you've got other folks who had almost no access to this, and they enter into a new space, a college space, for example, and all of a sudden, they're like really hot for being their ethnic background, their religious background. Uh, or both, or some common, yeah, I I kept uh, scratching my chin over, well, so then where's this coming from if we can't say definitively that these resources basically determine the strength of your identity? And that's what got me to this public narrative argument, that maybe there's something else going on that they're drawing from the larger public culture, and that public culture is sending them messages about you should decide who you are, not your Chinese community, not your Christian community, you should decide that's individualism speaking. And when they internalize that, that starts to make, I think, uh, a clearer picture as to what exactly is it that's driving identity engagements and whether or not one identity is more important than the other or if neither is important at all.
0: Wow. And that's all in chapter two? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Chapter two lays out the
1: history of it. And then I try to unpack it gradually from ethnicity to religion. I have a chapter actually on how people think about which identity is more important and that one is the kind of culmination that sort of picks out like this is where all that comes from the next chapter will be about asian american identity and then conclusion
0: wow this sounds like an incredibly rich manuscript and you mentioned you mentioned you conducted some interviews. Yeah. I I, I want to ask the nerdy method, method methodological question about quantitative and qualitative, but I don't know if my listeners are interested in that. So I'm gonna I'm gonna just check myself <laughs> okay. and, and note it you mentioned you're going to be working you're taking some research leave this academic year and you have a project on congregations and doing congregational surveys so this is a, that's a quantitative study that you want to do do you want to talk a little bit about that what you hope to do in this congregational survey and what your hypotheses are sure sure
1: uh, a lot of this actually was spurred on from a conversation on the conference that that you ran this past April so I'm really grateful for that because it was a good sort of thinking space for me to just nail down questions I've been having for over a decade now. When you look at any sort of quantitative studies of American congregations, Asian Americans are just invisible. If you're lucky, a few studies from multiracial church research has highlighted Asian Americans. This doesn't mean that there haven't been any studies of Asian American congregations, but they've not really been quantitative. We don't know how prevalent any of the things that ethnographers have found are across all kinds of Asian American religious groups. The part of the problem is that Asian Americans constitute about six or 7% of the population now. Trying to find them in a typical quantitative survey means that you would have to get an enormous number of uh, respondents. And on top of that, you would need to give them translation options in case English is not their preferred language. Because you're asking them really complicated questions. We now have, since 2016, three different surveys now that actually do what we call oversampling of Asian-Americans. And this last one that, that we're about to finish data collection on in 2021 will include 4,000 Asian-Americans with translations in Vietnamese, I think Chinese and Korean. So from that sample, we're go- we asked everybody, do you by any chance belong to some kind of a faith community or a religious community or a church, right? From those people that are, were willing to say, yes, I do belong to one, and we asked them, Uh, Do you happen to know which city or uh, cross streets or what the name of the church happens to be? If they give that information, we will now have an actual diverse sample of Asian-Americans who are part of different religious communities. And then we take that information, we develop a survey instrument that we send out to the religious leaders of each of these uh, communities and ask them if they could fill it out. So the idea is that hopefully we can do this all online to make it really simple. We will have information about Asian American congregations across the United States and across religious traditions. And we can talk about some of the main characteristics of each of these congregations that have typically been invisible, not talked about at all. Whenever people write books about about American congregations, it's always like the Asian Americans are just invisible from that story. So we're hoping, that with funding we'll be able to pull this kind of a project off over the next few years.
0: I think it's incredibly important to uh, make legible, make visible Asian American religious communities who don't fit easily into uh, white or black categories. So this seems to have intrinsic value for scholars of religion, depending on empirical and quantitative data about a religious community's religious life. I I think that seems pretty evident. What do you think might change based on this? Let's say the research gets funded. Let's say the results start coming back. What needle does it begin to shift? What do you think it might begin to indicate? Yeah. Is that jumping too far ahead.
1: I like uh, being able to think through uh, what are going to be the um, implications for pastors, for example, of Christian churches that have a preponderance of Asian Americans. I think it's going to reveal, let me just talk about one particular point. In a lot of studies of American congregations, they might ask whether or not there's more than one language uh, used in that particular congregation. But you can't actually split information about each of the congregations in which one language is used over another. For many Asian-American Christians, for example, we know that there's bilingual uh, services and what Steve Warner uh, called de facto congregations. That is, when you have an English ministry within a church, it's become its own mini church, a mini congregation within this larger congregation. A typical American survey of that congregation is only going to ask about the one dominant congregation in that group. That means it's never going to be the second generation English ministry. What we're going to be able to see is how are uh, the cultural differences evident within an alleged single congregation. There are these de facto congregations inside of it, and we're going to be able to see how these two groups are different from one another and how they are similar to or different from Predominantly white congregations, predominantly black congregations, and maybe even Latino congregations too. So I I hope that all of this will help move the needle in that direction. The second thing that, and this is probably the bigger piece, what are we doing to define what constitutes communal religion? So uh, much of our assumption has been built into a European Protestant centric way of thinking about religious community. And it doesn't make any sense to practicing Buddhists, Hindus, and even, I think, some of the ways that Muslims worship together. It's not quite the same thing. Sikhs as well. What I hope a, a study of Asian American congregations or communities will look like is raise the, a very basic question. What is a religious community actually about? What is What are its main principal components such that we have a more equitable way of talking about this in the future? as more people start embracing other faiths besides Christianity or blending maybe their Christianity with some other uh, faith tradition and vice versa.
0: You want to level the theoretical playing field when it comes to understanding the category of religious community, because there's some bias built into the current academic discourse or descriptive frameworks for religious communities.
1: Yes, exactly, exactly. Interesting,
0: interesting. Jerry, it's been, I've learned so much in talking to you. I think some of these topics that we've hit, hit upon, I want to revisit with you. I'm still, thinking, I'm still thinking through your manuscript, this uh, very novel theory about identities and the scripts we employ and the role of public narratives. So hopefully in a couple months, we can talk again And I can learn some more about you. You're doing fantastic work. I want to encourage others to read your stuff and uh, be in conversation with you. Do you have any um, closing thoughts or comments?
1: I I just want to state to this audience how much I appreciate you, David, as a conversation partner. I haven't had uh, an opportunity to talk about these issues throughout most of my tenure track life. I might get lucky and go to the uh, a party conference, for example, and find a a coffee break to talk with one or two people about one issue. But um, in the conversations I've had with you, I've had this remarkable sense of openness. Wow, I can actually talk about the whole thing all at once now. We can bring a lot of these issues and questions together and you can synthesize it now, it's possible. So yeah, I'm so appreciative of the opportunities that you're creating, especially through your center and your leadership in that. Yeah, I hope more listeners will continue to listen to David (laughs) Chowell.
0: On that note, we will conclude our conversation. Thank you, Jerry. All right. Thank you, David. Take care. We here at the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary invite you to join in the ongoing dialogue on Asian American faith, identity, social engagement, and ministry through our newsletter, blog, and upcoming conferences at ltiaa.com.